Doesn't matter if you have one ass cheek and three toes, I will beat your ass. What we, me and Coach Belichick talked about was just if a fight happens, we'll just throw those guys off and hopefully eliminate future fights. Well, in some respects, you get a lot more out of them. We can set up a lot more situations that'll come up that aren't going to come up in preseason games with the players who are most likely going to be playing them. And that would be a good place to start. Certainly in a preseason game, you don't get individual one-on-ones or two-on-twos or those kind of individual matchups that show up in a practice session. So I, there's a lot of differences between practicing games. I mean, we could be here all day talking about that. We came here not to fight. We came here to practice. So, uh, and it, just, it shows the maturity of a lot of other guys that that didn't escalate into like a big thing, you know. So for us, it was even a couple of younger guys. Like, you know, we're here to get better. You know, we don't want anybody to get hurt. You know, Bozeman looked like he got hurt. So we wanted to stay off the ground and work together. Doesn't matter if you have one ass cheek and three toes, I will beat your ass. You just crushed my dreams. Boom. Sadness. That's the one. Featuring Adam Candy. By the way, are the Lions the like exact type of team that deserves to be on Hard Knocks? What qualifies you to deserve to be on Hard Knocks? Well, that that we deserve. I on think hard uh, knocks. I think I a losing record. That. Yeah, my bad. But like, like if we're talking about just like good teams don't want to do it, but the Lions, you're absolutely getting tremendous quotes every week from that team. What I love the most about it, and I've told you this before is that I am the proud owner of a couple of pieces of Dan Campbell at 60 to 1, 60 oh, to 1 right. for coach of the year. And the more <laughs> this narrative gets hyped up and the more we love listening to Dan Campbell, if this team wins 10 games and gets a wild card, I, we are all going to Cabo. Okay, hold on. What is the what is the uh how good do the Lions have to be for him to win coach of the year? Do you think that's it a 10 10 and 7 wild card team losing the first round? Absolutely. Without question. This if this team gets to the playoffs, if we don't have some other team go sixteen and one, or if, you know, Lovey Smith doesn't make the Texans into something respectable, I cannot see who's winning coach of the year other than Dan Campbell. They make the playoffs, the love for Dan Campbell is going to be enormous. That means he took Jared Goff to the playoffs. All right. Uh the guy who uh, is actually gonna win coach of the year eventually, maybe, Brandon Staley. Uh, there's a story in The Athletic uh, about Brandon Staley from Daniel Popper. He's going to be on the show tomorrow uh, to talk about it. But Brandon Staley, for those of you unaware, is sort of the head man of the, hey, we're going to go for it on fourth down as much as we possibly can. Got a lot of criticism for it last year because in a couple of big spots, they had some failures on fourth down that contributed to losses. But they were actually one of the more successful teams on fourth downs over the course of the entire season. But it was a good story in The Athletic that sort of looked into, you know, the mindset, how the Chargers make these decisions. And I, I want to read a little bit from this story. Uh, Staley, who said this on, like, why he uses models, because the Chargers have effectively a win probability model that that's their own thing, and that's what helps them make fourth down decisions. Does Do they have a better chance of winning if they go for it or if they punt or kick the field goal here? And here's one of the things Staley said. But do I think when it comes to making these premium decisions in the heat of the moment that, man, my instincts are so much better than everybody else. And I would do a perfect job if I didn't have any information. There's just no way. I think this is one of the keys in coaching. I think this is one of the keys in like running a team, whatever. You can't assume that you know better than everything else. And like you can apply this to different things. I think one of the things we saw with the Raiders recently under Gruden and Mayock, that this applies to drafting, right? Mayock and Gruden thought they were smarter than everybody else. They thought they could identify talent 
that they thought was better than what everybody else thought. So they reached on players over and over and over. And like, in all honesty, if they had simply taken like the best player by uh, media members mock draft, they probably would have made better first round picks year after year. If you have a player and you're like, oh, we think he's the 20th best player in the draft, but all the media outlets have him ranked like 53rd and you get a sense that other teams have him outside the top 50, you're probably wrong. If you're the only one that has him ranked that high, you're probably the one that's wrong, not everybody else. It's a, you know, if you have a guy ranked like 20th and other people are like, ah, he's 27, that's not a big deal. But when you have them so much higher, that's what gets you Cleveland Furl, Jonathan Abrams, David Arnett, Alex Leatherwood, is you thinking you're smarter than everybody else. This also applies to fourth down decisions like we see with Brandon Staley, right? The draft is like an inexact science. It's hard to identify players, but this is probably actually easier because if you have a win probability model, as long as you trust the information you're putting into it to spit out the win probability, you should be doing exactly what that says, right? If something says, hey, decision A is going to give you a 42% chance of winning, decision B is going to give you a 48% chance of winning, why, who would you be a moron not to go with decision B just because your instincts say decision A is what has always been done or what you think is right? You should trust your win probability model. And I think that's the key here. Don't ever assume you're smarter than everybody else in your industry because you're probably not. You're probably the one that's wrong. And I think people get freaked out when they hear win probability and they hear analytics and all these things that are not familiar to them. And all we're saying is, Look back at history, look at information that has happened about things that have gone on in the past and use that to inform what you're going to do today. That's it. Analytics can in many ways be boiled down to this. Learn from your mistakes. If you just take that simple concept and apply it across the board to the information, people would be a lot less scared of <laughs> analytics. If you packaged it up that way, learn from your mistakes because we have now the ability to collect data to support years and years of bad decisions like running the ball on first down constantly, like running on second and long, like not going for it often enough on fourth down like Brandon Staley is talking about. But here's the thing that matters most when it comes to all of this. You have to do it consistently. You have to trust that information over and over and over again because 42% and 48% and all these numbers don't matter if you don't make the same decision for the same reasons over and over again. That isn't probability. And Brandon Staley going for it a few times on fourth down that didn't work out forces everyone to say, you never make it on fourth down. No, 48% means you make it about half the time which is probably a lot better than what your percentage is of not giving up points if you give the ball back on a punt. Uh, the Chargers last year, because what happens with Brandon Staley and the Chargers is you have a couple of big games. And the last one against the season with the Raiders, they had one where they went for it on fourth down from inside their own 20, didn't get it. They still came back to tie that game, but lost in overtime. The, the losses stand out, and that's where the criticism comes. But the Chargers last year won games where they went for it on fourth down and converted, you know, four or five times or three of six times, right? And last season as a whole, because like you said, they're doing it over and over. This isn't a one-time, hey, this is the right time to do it. No, it's they trust that they're going to do it over and over. The Chargers went for it on fourth down 31% of the time, by far the highest mark in the NFL. They still converted 65% of their fourth downs, which was the fourth highest mark in the NFL. They were the only high-volume, high-success fourth down team in the NFL 
last season. And that's what more teams should be doing. And I, I guess it, I mean, does it end up taking the Chargers like getting to the AFC title game or, or farther? Does it take that for teams to other teams to really, or maybe I shouldn't say teams because we know other teams do similar type stuff, but does it really take, I guess, mainstream NFL media, the, the guys on the halftime show that coached 20 years ago, does it take the Chargers having that level of success for them to be like, huh, maybe they do know what they're doing? No, it takes the decision that it happens in the spotlight to go the right way for everybody to then be more open to the probabilities that never changed in the first place, right? So if I tell you at the end of a football season that a team went, let's say, 13-4, and four, you think they're a good team, right? Usually that's what we do. Right. If the team went 13-4, they had a great season. Do you know if that means that they opened the year 8-2 and two and then, you know, finished the year 5-2? and two? Or that's probably not the best example of this. But could they have <laughs> yeah. gotten out to a very hot start and finished extremely poorly? Could they have started extremely poorly and finished well? Could they have been consistent and won and lost every game, win-loss, win-loss, for the whole season, right? These things are all baked into the probabilities it's just not how we view them we view them as the last thing we saw happen didn't work and when that's confirmation bias for us of this thing that we don't know what to do with that we don't understand that we're scared of with analytics and information and things that go against the enjoyment of what we've watched all these years then yeah it, it is something that becomes a problem the uh one of the other parts of the story from brandon staley that i liked a lot was or that i I guess I, I probably would have assumed this, but I never put much thought into it. Their fourth down decisions are kind of predetermined when a drive starts. So from the story, the example here would say the Chargers have a first and 10 from their own 40-yard line, and their win probability model indicates they would increase their win probability by going forward on fourth down as long as they have four yards or fewer to gain. And that information is communicated to all the relevant parties and that way they can call plays knowing that, hey, if we get to fourth and three, fourth and four, or even better, fourth and one, we're going to go for it. Unless there's, you know, Justin Herbert got hurt on third down or something like that. Like, I, I, I didn't know that explicitly, but that makes a lot of sense that like, hey, you go into an offensive drive, you go into a series with, a, okay, if we get to fourth and three, we're going for it. If it's fourth and six, we're going to pump the ball away because we already know ahead of time what our win probability model is going to say. But Tyler, that's not even the point. The point isn't about what you're going to decide on fourth down. The point is that it's baked into the system from the beginning and everyone, including the offensive coordinator, knows what we're doing in that spot. Like I'll use a quick example and then get back to the point of the math here. The Ravens have been doing this for a long time. The Ravens have an assistant whose entire job is to feed the probabilities and to feed this information to John Harbaugh as the game is going along. That person has direct contact into the headset for John Harbaugh, the head coach, and John Harbaugh is getting this information as they go along. So if you're making decisions as a head coach, as an offensive coordinator, do you want to know on second down, not fourth down? Do you want to know on third down? If you have third and four and you know you're going for it on fourth and four, are you throwing? Or are you running? You might be running to try to make your fourth down shorter. You might be perfectly content to come up with three yards on third and four, knowing in the first place that we're going for it on fourth and one. 
why do you think people have such a hard time recognizing like, hey, win probability says this decision gives you a 49% chance of winning, this decision gives you a 41% chance of winning? Like, why is it so hard to just be like, oh, okay, well, obviously I'll do what gives me a better win probability. Do they just not believe that it's real? Because it's what John Madden told them growing up. We have to keep in mind that for most fans, this is not an analytical informational exercise. This is fun on a Sunday. It's an entertainment product. And what we want with that entertainment product is we want to be able to put our arms around it and have it be comforting to us. And it's not comforting to us when we challenge all of the assumptions that we've always known. And we also don't want to be told that someone else is smarter than us. And, and what we get told constantly is that, well, if you would just look at the information, right? And when people hear that, they think they're being told they're stupid. And so when you feel like you're being told you're stupid, you're going to be resistant to an idea, especially when that idea is about something you're just doing for fun. I don't want to learn all this stuff. I don't want to have to deal with all of these numbers and information. I just want to enjoy my Sunday. And so that's the sort of thing that gets in the way of understanding that when you talk about probability, the numbers you just picked, 49%, 41%, that is an enormous edge. 8% in a decision is an enormous, enormous edge, and you should take that edge every time. I love Adam Candy, first of all. I love when he does that. That's that's why I love Adam Candy. Second of all, the irony of what John Madden told them to do versus what they would do while playing a video game named after John Madden. Because if you've ever played that, I've never met someone punt who punted in a game of Madden. No, it doesn't exist. No, no, no one even knows who the punters are in Madden. That reminds me of one of like the greatest quotes from the random random person was a guy who won a Madden championship. The quote he gave about like why he might actually be better at situational decisions in NFL coaches, and he was like, "I've played thousands, maybe millions of NFL games. These guys get to coach seventeen a year. I play. I'm in this situation thousands of times in a year." So I've just dealt with it more. And the idea of probability and doing it over and over, when you only have 17 games, it's small sample size. When you play 2,500 games a month, you got a massive sample size to know what works and doesn't work. So hire a Madden guy to be your next head coach. Coming up next, Sam and Ash join the show. University of British Columbia by a score of 79 to 72. They'll be back at it again tonight against the University of Calgary. And the Las Vegas Aviators defeated the Sacramento River Cats by a score of 12 to 1. Call Sam at Ash at 702-820-1234 or visit their website, samandashlaw.com. Sam and Ash, because you deserve what's right. Good morning, guys. We there? Sam? They're, they're in the room. Hello. Can they hear me? I believe they have themselves muted. Oh, I like when people have themselves muted. I do Good morning. The there, <laughs> there we go. We our, go. Our mics were off. I know. There Crazy. Not I enough coffee. Lot. Yeah, but yeah. Ash was trying to figure out the music. What's my? What's the new song we have? Oh, you got Miley Cyrus got replaced. What was that, Jared? That would be a Canadian Scottish punk rock band called the Real McKinsey's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing says Ash like, like a real... Canadian punk rock band. <laughs> I may have forgotten. Oh, I need to make on. notes. I thought we had something, Jared. Really? All right. <laughs> nah, probably not with Jared. Um, I have a I have a, a fun question for you guys that deals with Major League Baseball and their television blackout. So Las Vegas deals with this, uh, but it's actually from a state legislature in Iowa. 
and he wants to end MLB blackout. So to try to quickly run through exactly what happens here, Major League Baseball, every part of the country is in a territory of a certain MLB team. And some places like Iowa and Las Vegas have multiple teams that claim that city or that state as their territory. Las Vegas and Iowa both have six different teams that claim us as their territory. So what that means is, if, for like example, I have DirecTV, the six teams are the Diamondbacks and then all five California teams, if I buy the sports package, I can watch all those five, uh, six teams' games on my TV. But if I buy the MLB streaming package, which allows you to watch out-of-market teams, I get blacked out for those games. You'll also get blacked out for some national TV games because they want you to watch it on the local cable channel because that's where they get a lot of money from. Well, there's a state legislator in Iowa named J.D. Schlotten who's been tweeting about this a lot recently, and he wants to end MLB blackouts. And my question to you guys is, what exactly could an MLB legislature do to try to end Major League Baseball from blacking out games on their streaming service or on national TV channels? Uh, I respect his moxie, and I think this is a great cause. I'm not sure he can do a lot okay. as a state <laughs> as a state guy because this is interstate commerce, and this is regulated by the feds. This is a uh, this is a uh, ultimately something that that needs to be addressed in Congress. Uh, so I, you know, a, a U.S. senator, a U.S. congressman, you know, might might be able to move the needle on this. But I'm I'm definitely thinking he's going to get votes for this. <laughs> Is right? that what this is about, to get votes? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's an election coming up in November. Maybe, you know, maybe he's up uh, He's up for, you know, up for if, re-election and needs to, needs to get the word out. And now we're all talking about him. If it was beyond the state level, if it was at the federal level, like, is there even anything they could do there? Or is this just, it seems to me it's like it's just Major League Baseball's decision on how and where they want their games to be available to be watched. Sure. I think the bigger thing now is we're realizing how many people have cut cable and are streaming. And so what you're going to see is these contracts are actually shifting. The valuable contracts are now on streaming services and not on these media rights held by local markets. And what I realistically think is going to happen is you're just going to see a bunch of people selling VPNs, you know, so they can ping themselves out of <laughs> Iowa and into a different market so they're not blacked out. And that's you see that now with uh, online gaming. People are always using these VPNs so that their Internet is tracked within a certain state so they can game online when their state doesn't have it. Yeah, I think Ashley has a little too much personal experience. With it. Have you ever done that? No, but with maybe your... Rocky has. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because right. like your BetMGM app, you know, yeah. if you if you go out of if you go out of state, it doesn't work. Yeah. But you can. There are ways to, you know, to get around that. Uh, there's a story with Wayne Gretzky where he's being sued uh, for ten million dollars over uh, some chewing gum. Apparently, there was a chewing gum that said it would help you uh, lose weight. And I guess Wayne Gretzky was a part of an advertising campaign and said that it helped him lose 35 pounds in about eight weeks. And he's now being sued by somebody who is claiming that Wayne Gretzky lied, it boosted the company's stock, and then when Wayne Gretzky uh, basically had to say, no, no, that didn't help me lose that much weight that quickly, the stock tanked and this guy's claiming that he lost a bunch of money on this um for okay before we get to the actual lawsuit how does this work with like false 
advertising and you know having a celebrity or even just a regular person say oh i use this product and i lost 35 pounds like how how do you can you get in trouble for that if it's like a celebrity that's endorsing your product it's anybody um and by the way these are this is just a, a consumer fraud case uh and you know I, I've had a handful of these. We've we've worked on a, on a few of these cases, and they're you know certainly if there is a misleading statement put out there, and people rely on that statement, and harm comes to them, uh, then then yes, there's there's a claim. This is very different though. This is really in, in effect a securities case. It's a business case. There's a transaction here that went sour. I kind of don't get it because I've I've looked at the suit, and the guy that is filing the suit created the company. He's the guy that created the gum. Then Gretzky comes along, pumps it up. The company goes up in value, and then there's so it goes up and then back down again. Uh, so I think you know I, the measure of his damage is 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 not going to be his the 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 up and the down. It's going to be whatever the delta was from the beginning before the the you know the the lie occurred and where you know ultimately the stock settled. So I think this case, my take on it at least, is that. I don't think it's going to go very far. I don't think it's, a, in fact, truly a $10 million worth of damages case. Uh, should you not be allowed to get any money because you created a gum and said that it would help people lose weight? I'm kind of with you. I think if anyone <laughs> should have known the product didn't work, it's the guy who created it. It's called OMG, Overeating Management Gum. And I, the, I always thought that gum made you more hungry. No. I don't know. I, I thought that's the problem with, I don't know. Anyway, I, I'm I, on I, it. I don't, okay. You're on <laughs> and? Well, I still got to um, Google. Give me a couple seconds. Oh, I thought you were oh. going to. I thought you were going to. Oh, gonna I thought you said you're on the gum. gum. I thought you yeah. were using the gum. <laughs> I'm on many things. Gum is not one. Again, Jared, not on air. Do not list them on air. Yeah, Jared, we don't want you to Google this. We want you to just start chewing gum and tell us you're hungry. That's, that's the key here. Um, all right, another story, and this comes from uh, high school or youth football, and the brother of Akib Talib, who used to be a defensive back in the NFL, has turned himself in after a youth football coach was shot and killed during a disagreement, a fight, during a youth football game. Uh, they issued a warrant for Akib Talib's brother. He eventually turned himself in. There is a video uh, that's out there, but you can't, you, you sort of see people pushing and shoving, but you don't actually see uh, a gun or anybody being shot. You hear it, then you see people running. It's not, it doesn't seem like a great video here. But um, ultimately here, like this is, this is going to be Akib Tlaib's brother going to jail for just murdering somebody at the end of the day, right? Yeah, they're going to, of course, try and say there was some level of self-defense, that he had a reasonable fear for his own safety in this scuffle, and it's going to be very difficult for him to prove that his use of deadly force was necessary in light of whatever fears he had. So it's going to be a very difficult claim of self-defense, but that's what I anticipate them doing and ultimately probably getting convicted without any further evidence or facts the otherwise but can i just say that youth sports have gotten a little more intense since i remember playing them there have been so many referee fights so many coach fights and now we have shootings this is out of control yeah it's it's incredible the level to which these things go i mean we talked to you guys about here in las vegas the referee at a uh i think it was an aau basketball game that got yeah. jumped in the parking lot like it's it's unreal that that's the level to which people will go over, uh, I don't know, 12-year-olds playing football, 12-year-olds playing basketball, 
whatever it ends up being. Um, we've talked a lot with you guys about, you know, self-defense cases, or at least people trying to argue uh, the self-defense side. Does that ultimately come down to does a jury believe or their like actual definitions of what is and is not acceptable self-defense uh, for shooting somebody? You know, it's a question of fact. And so that's what the will be put on trial. They'll say these are this is what Akib Talib was faced against a, a guy. And they'll they'll try and say there was maybe a size difference. The the guy had a weapon of his own. He was threatening things, holding up like something. And they will try and prove that his fear was reasonable. And it's up to a jury to take all those factual pieces of evidence and decide was Akib Talib's fear a reasonable fear and his use of deadly force reasonable with that in mind so and it's definitely so, a question of fact right and it ultimately comes like so it comes to a jury so i get so like the follow-up to that is you could have similar situations that one jury determines was reasonable use of force for self-defense and then the, the different jury would determine nope that's not a reasonable use of self-defense absolutely Absolutely. That's why jury selection is probably one of the most critical aspects of your trial, whether it's criminal or civil, making sure you get jurors on that panel and in that box that will evaluate your case most favorably. And that's where some of the toughest uh, fights between lawyers happens. All right. Um, you guys, uh, you know, Ed ditched out on you again. I think he did it purposefully for you guys. Who? who? Ed, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, who? I, I don't know an Ed. <laughs> irrelevant now all right it's sam and ash sam and ashlaw.com 702-820-1234 as always guys we appreciate it i have an answer real quick all right go <laughs> all ahead jared right. okay according to the university of rhode island people who chewed gum consumed 68 fewer calories at lunch <gasps> i'm uh, wondering wow. 68 I'm, calories those add I'm, up don't they omg <laughs> Jared, be careful. You're going to get sued for $10 million. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it as you. always. Thank you. We got you, Jared. So there's Sam and Ash again. SamandAshLaw.com, 702-820-1234. Coming up next, it's Bischoff's Briefs. As UNLV eh, lost a game to a college that might not exist. The rules of Scrabble are simple. First, each player pretends to mix the tiles while trying to feel for the letter A. Bischoff's Briefs. The game does not officially begin until one player reminds all the others that the first word scores double. That player is known as the Scrabble Jackass and is then handed the box top for any further rule clarifications. Bischoff's Briefs. Players then take turns laying down words until someone does a bad job hiding the fact that they drew a blank. Bischoff's Briefs. Upon seeing the blank draw, each player must make a bad joke about the tiles in their possession. Bischoff's Briefs. Play continues until each turn takes longer than open heart surgery, and the game ends when one person uses the last of their letters. Even though at this point no one likes that person, they're still referred to as the winner. Bischoff's Briefs. And that's how you scrabble. UNLV lost to the University of British Columbia last night, 79-72. You can listen to it on the radio, uh, or you could have listened to it on the radio. It's also now posted to UNLV's YouTube channel if you want to go watch it. They do play again tonight against the University of Calgary. Again, hear that right here on ESPN Las Vegas. Um, if you're into excuses, apparently UNLV was supposed to leave on Monday. Their flight got canceled on Monday. They didn't leave until Tuesday morning and got to Vancouver at 2.30 and played at 7. So there's a built-in excuse for UNLV. Um, 
I will say about this, do I know how good British Columbia is at basketball? I do not. I can tell you their leading scorer yesterday, James Wood, transferred to British Columbia from Central Wyoming College. And he went for 33 against UNLV. So a JUCO transfer that didn't end up transferring up to like a Division I American college put up 30 on UNLV yesterday, a team that's supposed to be good defensively. Um, if you look at UNLV offensively, uh, they scored. You ready for this, Adam? 0.89 points per possession. I have a points per possession from a scrimmage against the University of British Columbia. 0.89, which would be, if they did that over the course of an entire college basketball season, they'd be one of the 10 worst offenses in the country. So that's how bad that performance was offensively. Defensively, uh, given the opponent and given that's supposed to be the strength of this team, probably not very good either. They did hold the Colum British Columbia under a point per possession at 0.98, but that's still not exactly good for what UNLV should be doing to this team. Now, as far as uh, who Kevin Kruger played in this game, Jackie Johnson led the team with 16 points, though he came off the bench. And I would say UNLV down five in the final 30 seconds. Kevin Kruger called a timeout, and out of that timeout, Jackie Johnson's the one that got the ball and took the shot. So we've been trying to figure out who's going to be the leading scorer, where this team is going to find offense. The one bit of information we have now, Jackie Johnson might be in that conversation. Uh, the starting lineup for UNLV is Keyshawn Gilbert, Jordan McCabe, Justin Webster, Luis Rodriguez, and David Mawaka. I don't know that that means a whole lot because that is the four guys that returned from last year plus Luis Rodriguez. So I think that might have had more to do with Kevin Kruger's starting lineup than who his actual starting lineup would be because his closing lineup might actually be a little bit more telling. UNLV was in a close game. They were chasing it, right? This wasn't a case of, oh, we're just uh, blowing them out. But he went very small to end the game. Keyshawn Gilbert, Jackie Johnson, Elijah Parquet, Justin Webster, and Luis Rodriguez. That's basically four guards and a small forward out there. There's no actual big on the floor in that Luis Rodriguez is not any sort of forward or uh, power forward or center for UNLV. So that might have a little bit more indication of what Kevin Kruger thinks of his current players is the guys that ended the C or ended the game as opposed to started the game. Now UNLV's game again tonight is against the university of Calgary. I feel like I know a little bit more about how good this team is because earlier this month, They've already played games, and they played Colorado State, a fellow Mountain West opponent, and they lost to Colorado State twice, 92-65 to and 71-59. to It is the middle of August. Basketball season is still a couple of months away, but if UNLV loses to the University of Calgary tonight after they got run over by Colorado State twice, I think we're going to have a fair reason to question how good this team is. I don't want to quite overreact to it. I, I will tell you this, Mike Ramallah and his story about it, he compared this team to Marvin Menzies' first-year team. And if you remember, that is one of, if not the, worst team in UNLV basketball history. The reason Mike compared him is because they went on a foreign trip as well, and they lost their first game to the University of Toronto. And so Mike Ramallah is the one that took the blowtorch and maybe overreaction to one preseason game but there's your quick update on unlv basketball i'm going to watch the rest of this game on youtube after the show today and then listen to them play calgary and probably beat calgary tonight i do have one thing though adam and i'm curious um 
our, our resident referee, do you think that FIBA has better basketball rules than college basketball? No, I don't. I, okay. I, and I'm not going to get too deep into that. I only know a handful of FIBA referees. What I do know is that you, sir, are talking about a University of British Columbia team that went 11-0 and on its home floor last year. Uh-oh. It can't be 11-0. A couple of years ago, they played Cal State Bakersfield this time of year. Gave them 88 points. They, you know, they, they might have lost 94-88, but, you know, <laughs> they, they, they did put up 88 points. Uh, so I, I, I feel like you are... You are maybe not the Thunderbirds aficionado that you claim to be. Uh, I don't claim to be one. I just think UNLV should have still beat them. Uh, all right. So on the FIBA rules, there are three things that I think that college basketball should have right now that FIBA does have. 10-minute uh, quarters instead of two 20-minute halves. I don't really have a solid reasoning. I guess we get more end-of-clock scenarios, which can add a little uh, artificial excitement. But... I'm pretty sure every league across the entire world plays quarters except for division one men's college basketball and they play halves. So give us quarters instead. Accurate information. Let's, we can actually put some numbers to this. So women's college basketball switched a few years ago to the quarter system. And the biggest thing it does is reduce free throws and reduce the amount of overall game time from the time that women's basketball switched over. And what they do is it's no longer seven fouls for one and one double bonus at 10 it's you get to five and it's double bonus immediately there is no one and one you get to five and you've reset it at the end of the quarter so you don't get into a situation where you pick up a bunch of fouls early in the game and then it's a parade to the free throw line the rest of the way and this has a market effect on time in the very first season of this switchover women's basketball the division one level cut 15 minutes per game off its games just by that switch that's a lot. So, all right, there is reason to do it other than just everybody else does it. Um, the other thing, and this I think would get a lot of coaches complaining and might be a little ugly for a couple of years until teams adjusted, I want the 24-second shot clock in college basketball. I think it speeds up the game. You get more possessions. Sure, you might have a few more ugly possessions. Coaches are not – they get less control, but I would prefer to see that. And then the one that wouldn't have as big of an effect in college basketball, I want to see it in the NBA, though, is – I want to allow goaltending the way FIBA allows goaltending, where you can swat the ball off the rim. I think that would add a level of excitement. Obviously, you can't stick your hand up through the basket and block it. But if it's on the rim, you can swipe it off. And also, offensive goaltending shouldn't exist. Like, why should I be penalized? Because I'm helping my team put the basket or put the ball in my basket. That's never made sense to me that offensive goaltending would be even a thought. Uh, but I like FIBA's goaltending rules much better than what we do here in the United States. So basically, you want all these things that could potentially increase scoring, but then you want to put in the one rule that will absolutely annihilate scoring. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, swipe it off the rim if you can. Yeah, I think you should be... If you can knock it off the rim, I think you should be allowed to do that. That is a display of athleticism that is entertaining to watch. It's as entertaining it, to watch as somebody making a shot. It is a display of athleticism that will lead to creative Division One coaches and NBA coaches giving you 58 to 50 games every day. Like, you're going to see nothing but threes at that point, right? Or even if you do, what you're going to do is you're going to have a player who just stands by the rim and waits to block shots. Permanent cherry picker! Well, yeah, Jared loves this. And a defensive cherry picker. Yeah. No, this is no, this is absolutely terrible. The one they have to... They have to at this point, it feels like arrogance from Division One men's college basketball to still have 20-minute halves. 
right? Like you're not going to tell us what to do. It's one of those things we're going to hang on to. <laughs> like it doesn't make any sense at all. It switched to the quarter system. You can still get the same amount of ads in for TV. Nothing changes in terms of that. Like we, we absolutely need this. I think the problem with the 24 second shot clock isn't going to be at division one. It's that the NCAA wants to apply rules evenly and down at the division two and division three levels you're going to have a whole lot of point guards who are not equipped to get the ball across in eight seconds. <laughs> okay, well, they can keep their 30-second shot clock. That's fine. I'm okay with that. I'm not going to watch any of it. All right, coming up next, uh, looks like Darren Waller. He exists. But first, we got a four-pack of tickets to the Three Ice Hockey Playoff Championships at the Orleans Arena on Saturday, August 20th. That's this Saturday. If you want to go out to the Three Ice Hockey Playoff Championships, Call now. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. We'll take caller number four to win four tickets to the three ice hockey playoff championships at the Orleans. Caller four at 702-364-1100. I need to win it. I need need to win it. But uh, uh, I'll be candid with you. Uh, There's degrees. Uh, I want to be fair to everybody concerned. Uh, We need to uh, uh, be in the playoffs. To have us be a successful season. You're locked in the press box. Congratulations to Reed. He won the tickets to the three ice championships at the Orleans Arena. Thanks to Adam Candy for filling in today for Ed Graney. Adam will be back tomorrow. We'll catch up with Ed from Raiders practice. And by the way, according to uh, the media covering the Raiders practice this morning, Darren Waller has returned to practice. Uh, That's the only update we have so far. Uh, But it looks like Darren Waller uh, was accurate when he told Paul Gutierrez that he'd likely be back this week. Uh, So everything's good to go. No uh, need for a new contract. Darren Waller suiting up for the Raiders all season long. Yep. Just like you and I said, this was you and uh, the both of us sat here and said there's no chance that this is a holdout situation, right? Or a hold-in situation as the new logic goes. We had this discussion. This is the way that it's going to work out. Like, he's going to be fine. He's going to play. This is never a contract situation. And by the way, not just Darren Waller back, but perhaps more importantly, both Trayvon Mullen and Rock Yassin back on the field. So some cornerbacks we recognize. Yeah, it's been uh, overshadowed by some Josh Jacobs playing time, Darren Waller not being there, and the offensive line being a mess. But they have not had their top two cornerbacks for like any of the preseason so far. Uh, so yeah, it's not, uh, Oh, can Anthony Averett prove that he's worthy? How good is Nate Hobbs? Uh, yeah. Rock Justin and Trayvon Mullen probably going to be probably going to be a pretty big key to the Raiders this season and how good they are because defensively it's Crosby and Chandler Jones. And then outside of that, it's a bunch of guys that you're, you're kind of hoping are average. Maybe a couple guys take a step beyond average. But cornerbacks, uh, one of the premium positions, or at least in the top half of premium positions, and we'll see how good Rock Yassin and Trayvon Mullen are. There's certainly some potential that those guys can be an above-average uh, cornerback pairing, but there's also, the flip side of that, the potential that they're a below-average cornerback pairing and kind of undo a lot of what Crosby and Chandler Jones bring defensively to the Raiders. And also, along those lines of the defense, you heard Jason Fitz, if you were with us at 8.30, talk about the Raiders' interior defensive line getting run over. Well, Jonathan Hankins is also back today, and Jonathan Hankins is probably their most talented interior defensive lineman, along with Bilal Nichols. 
does that mean this is the real start of training camp in the preseason and these first two games and all these three or four weeks were all meaningless? Until I see Derek Carr place his hands <laughs> under the backside of Andre James, the preseason has not really started. Uh, so the preseason might never start for the Raiders then. You don't think Derek Carr's playing a snap in the preseason? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, McDaniels obviously has said nothing to indicate one way or the other. I kind of lean towards I probably wouldn't play him, uh, especially given the offensive line and how it's looked in the preseason. Um, but I could, I could understand the logic of, hey, new system. We want to at least see it once. We want to at least see it. But, like, I go back to the quote Aaron Rodgers gave, I think it was last week, about, like, uh, it's kind of pointless to put us out there for one series or two series. Like, if you're going to play us, play us for at least a quarter, if not longer. Otherwise, what, what are we doing here? And so I, I don't know if McDaniels would run out Derek Carr in the offense for a whole half, which I think if you're going to play him might be the best way to do it. So, I, but I, I don't know. He, McDaniels doesn't say much of anything to give things away. So I have no idea, but I think I would lean towards not playing him if it was my decision. Tyler, no, I, I, oh, go ahead, Adam. Sorry. I want him out there. I, I want him out there at least a little bit because of this. The Raiders face, by most measures, the hardest schedule in the NFL through the first five weeks. I want my team to have had, uh, my first team, to have at least had some on-field experience in the environment that they're going to be in. Like, again, I don't know that I'm going to use all of my starters, but I'm definitely not going to throw them out there for the first time in week one. And I also don't know that I'd use Aaron Rodgers as my guide for should hey, we play them hey, a series hey. or should we play them for a quarter? I also so, go back to something that Aaron Rodgers said last week. I want to win a championship. I've had all this individual success I could possibly ever have dreamed of accomplishing. I've got four MVPs. I'm an honorary black belt. I'd like to uh, to win another Super Bowl. He's an honorary black belt, and so am yeah. I. How do you not listen to him? Of course, he got somebody awarded him a black belt with no work. You got to listen to that guy. I believe we now need to ask about every single Aaron Rodgers quote. Was he or was he not high on ayahuasca at the time that he said this? <laughs> Are you suggesting he might not have an honorary black belt and he was just high at the moment? I think that Aaron Rodgers is the kind of guy who might just convince you he's an honorary black belt. And then when you ask him later, it's going to be the word salad crap that he used to get around vaccination last oh, yeah. year, right? Oh, yeah, immunized. I'm immunized, right? Oh, I never said what I was an honorary black belt in. I got that at Whole Foods. I'm one of the best they've ever seen at picking melons. All right. Uh, help me out with this quote. I'm reading an Alanis Tim's uh, tweet here. Dolphins coach Mike McDaniel said he expects some players who didn't play in the preseason opener last week to play this week against the Raiders. Cleverly avoided specifying if Tua will play. Quote, you guys will know when I know. Does that mean Tua's playing? I don't think that he is playing. I don't see why they would throw him out there this week, but I do like the fact that both McDaniels are going to play this game with us. <laughs> Are they, do you think they're playing it with us or are they playing it with each other? I don't know. I mean, if they're playing it with each other, I'm not, I am was going to reference a movie here. I, I have to stop myself when I think it. of Jared movies. Will that know it. Yeah, I'll Jared get it, man. It. Me and the okay. audience will really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's fine. Trading Places. Yeah. Oh. I don't know what that is. What specifically part of Trading Places? The bet $1? Yep. Okay. That's exactly it. Like, like 
I don't think these two millionaires need to make it more interesting for each other in the preseason by like, you know, like, I'm not going to tell you. Like, I, I don't know that we're going to see two of this week. I don't know. I don't think we're going to see Derek Carr this week. I just think we're going to see Derek Carr before the end of the preseason. Do I, do you guys need to explain to me what the hell of movie yes. you're talking about or just move on? Imagine this. Imagine that two <laughs> very, very rich men decide to orchestrate a, uh, I'll just say a cruel scheme. Oh, and they do all of it over a wager of $1. Like, and it affects a lot of people's lives. Like two billionaires basically decide, I'm going to make this guy poor and I'm going to make this guy rich. And they, these two billionaires bet $1. Just the douchiest right. thing I, you possibly can sounds, do. Sounds bad, but I can relate to the betting of $1. Like, yeah, it's more fun if you bet your friend $1 on something. You have more interest in it, even if it's a dollar. Mm, it's not about the dollar. It's you're about not, the bragging rights. You are very much not getting the point of this, but I'm not surprised considering you're... I am, I am a pop culture hermit, and yet somehow I feel like I'm Team TMZ around you.